But if you take your Bible and turn, first of all, to the book of Romans and to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul is deeply concerned and represented in the opening words of verse 1 of his concern for his people Israel. But we know that there's a fuller and broader and a, a true eternal sense to the sheer encompassing grace of God as it comes to us in Jesus Christ. So we read these words as encompassing the whole of the people of God. Romans 10 verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even thy mouth and in thy heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. And there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Turn this time to the letter to the Hebrews, this time to chapter 11. Uh, The chapter, of course, relates to us, that which has been called the Hall of Fame of Faith. Not exhaustively so, but as we read, we find there are many Old Testament saints and These all live by faith. This is what the chapter emphasizes. Again, beginning to read at verse 1. Now, faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, 
by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith in Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Well, what I did this morning was deal with the subject I want to do the same this evening, and it's a kindred to what I preached on this morning or endeavoured to to minister to you, that is this matter of grace. This evening, if it hasn't been made obvious to you, um, I hope it will be, I want to consider the matter of faith. Now, I I want to do so um, for quite a number of reasons, not least. It, It does appear to me that, again, faith, like grace and like so much else that is um, belonging to the Christian world and the Christian language has been misused and misrepresented and tragically mistreated so badly that it, it barely has any resemblance to what the Bible speaks of. We, maybe like me, you've heard faith spoken of variously. I heard it on one occasion spoken of like this. Faith is very simple. It's like Um, You go to the water tap, you you turn on the water tap. Uh, That's an exercise of faith. But I take exception to that because it's not faith of the Bible kind. I'm going to give you some information this evening from the Bible as to what this faith is, but it's certainly not that kind of thing. It's not like going to a water tap because when you go to a water tap, you're not really thinking anything more than you want to either fill a kettle or a pot or a glass of water. That's what you're thinking about. You're going to get something out of it. But you're not thinking of a reservoir somewhere, a pumping system, a series of pipes and filtration and all the rest of it that's involved in the water that comes to your tap. We don't think about those things. So in other words, we can do this thoughtlessly. But the faith of which the Bible speaks demands thought. One clever man who's gone to be with the Lord some years ago said that Christianity is truly the thinking man's religion. I think, and I say this by way of a side, so many people, even sincere believers in Jesus Christ, have reduced it and made it other than a thinking man's religion, you kind of drift into it, you drift along with it, and you finally end up at your destination. 
But the Bible, again, is redolent with the fact that it takes thought. Or again, uh, you can think of it like this. It's often spoken of as if you go to a light switch, you, you trip the light switch, and that's, that's faith. You're, you're exercising faith. And what you're doing in tripping the light switch is you hope the lights are going to come on. That, that's what you're doing, and that's the sum total of it. You're not thinking that somewhere or another there's a generation system and again through a series of cables and transformers and everything else that the electric arrives at your house and when you trip the switch the live side transmits to the other side and the power is then sent to the light and it engages with the light and the bulb is full of a certain gas and it gives you light. You don't think about all of that. That's you don't need to understand really anything about electricity at all in order to benefit from light. You don't need to think about how the water gets to your house. You just need to know exactly the benefit that you derive from it. But that's the way it's oftentimes thought about. Thank you. I'll, t- I'll take my jacket off while you're opening the window, if you don't mind. Bible faith is simply set forth to us. And it's set forth in a way that in no way lends itself to misinterpretation. You just can't misunderstand it. You can't think about it in terms of water at the tap or electricity or light switch. You can't think about it like that at all. That's really quite wrong. I read to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. I didn't read it to you this evening, but... The great text of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Now what is not of yourselves? This faith. It's not something that is inherent in every single solitary person. It's not. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So in other words, lest anyone should come along and say, I've got faith and you don't have faith. And boast about it, God says it doesn't come from you. It's not something that is within you to exercise. It comes from without. And I read to you this evening from the book of Romans chapter 10, which tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This faith is born from hearing the word of God, which makes the word of God the essential component in all our thinking about faith. It is created by the scripture itself. That's what the Bible teaches us. So the first thing then that we understand from Romans ten seventeen is that faith originates with God himself. Faith originates with God himself. It's a gift. It's the gift of faith of which the Bible has a great deal to say. It comes from God God himself is the the objective of this faith. And the faith, when it's given, well, we have an obligation to employ it, to use it, to develop it. We have to add to our faith. That's what, again, the Bible teaches us. Peter writes about this, add to your faith, this and this and this and this and this. So faith originates with God, according to Romans 10, 17, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we have this gift of God given to us and it manifests itself in a lifestyle 
that is consistent with the character of the God who is himself the object of this faith. So there's a kind of a circular thing that operates in all of this. It comes from God. It has God as its object. And the obligation of the people who possess this faith is to represent this God who grants us this grace of faith to believe. That's something of a Bible definition. When we consider some of the characters, and there's many that we can consider in the Bible, and there's many that we could consider in Hebrews 11, I want to turn your attention for a few moments this evening to the character of Noah. I could have chosen any one of these characters, but I've chosen to, to deal with Noah this evening as one who possessed this faith. Now, whenever we turn back to the book of Genesis, and you can do this yourself, you turn back to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, you make a discovery about the world in which you and I live, the world in which Noah lived. The world in which Noah lived, by God's own description, had become utterly corrupt. The Bible would have us to understand that mankind was incapable, incapable of thinking a decent thought. I don't think we have quite got to that point yet. I think we're approaching it very rapidly. But I don't think we've got to the point where we can say that all of humanity is bereft of the ability to think a decent thought. What we discover about this saving faith is that it is indeed, as God would have it to be, industrious. In other words, it works. Now, it's not simply true because it works. We maybe have heard that sometimes. It's true because it works. No, it works because it's true. There's a difference there, a world of difference. It works because it's true. Saving faith is industrious. Now, here's this character, Noah, who lived in a day when mankind in its totality was utterly bereft of, of common decency. And God separates this man, and he believes God. He believes God. And he undertakes a task that in any man's language must have seemed utterly insane. Uh, just stop for a few moments this evening and if you possibly can, think about it. God speaks to this man precisely what way he spoke to him. We don't know. He didn't have the scriptures. But God employed whatever means he chose to employ and he spoke to Noah and he directs Noah to build an ark. That must have seemed such a nonsensical thing to do. Especially in the area where we understand the ark was built. Now you see, up to Genesis chapter 6, there was, there was a void. And the void was concerning that which you and I in this country know a great deal about. The world, up until the point of the deluge upon the world which raised up the ark, the world knew nothing about it. What the Bible does teach us is that those early centuries of time, God watered the earth not by rain that fell down, but by a mist that rose up. Rain was an alien phenomenon to the world at that particular time. But God tells Noah to build an ark. An ark that he might be saved, he and his house and 
the occupants of the ark, namely the animals and the creatures of the world that God had appointed. So for God to come to Noah to ask him to build an ark must have seemed a strange thing in the years of Noah. Well, what, what, what was this for? What was the purpose of this? And it took over a hundred years. And I know I can speak for myself, and I'm not simply being hyper-humble when I say this, but I think after maybe 25 years of working, because the industry of this faith would have required him cutting down trees, shaping these timbers, laying a keel, a stem, a stern, the framework, the planking, and all that would make this ship because that indeed that was what it was. It wasn't a little rowing boat, it was a ship. It was going to carry a family and thousands of animals. So it was quite an enterprise. He has to do all of that. And he has to do it because God has made a requirement of him to do it, which seemed ridiculous because he didn't understand what was going to happen with this thing. And maybe after 25 years, if, Noah, if I had been Noah, I might have been asking, Lord, explain to me exactly what you mean. Give me a sign or ask me again or tell me again because you told me 25 years ago about this and I still see no rhyme the reason for this other than I'm doing this according to your word but reason would say to me that this is an insane enterprise. After 50 years, 75 years, 100 years, and he's still undertaking this great work until the day in which the ark was completed. And only at that point, then did God work his sovereign work to send rain from heaven. And such was the deluge of rain that it destroyed the then known world and bore the ark up. Saving faith is industrious. It works against the background of what might be considered humanly unreasonable. And there's nothing that's more unreasonable, at least to the natural mind, than to think of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the great work of Jesus upon the cross. It doesn't make any sense to them. And again, the Bible would have us to understand this, that the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness on them. They don't make sense. They don't understand the character of God and therefore not understanding the character of God. They don't understand the purpose which he has set in place and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any sense. But yet with the people of God, it functions. Some of you to whom I speak this evening have been converted for many, many years. And here you are this evening. Maybe you remember days when the church building here was more occupied than it actually is at the present time. We're in a state of spiritual demise. But yet you're still persuaded. You're still convinced. And it may be that maybe your zeal has waned somewhat. Maybe your interest is not what it once was, but you're still convinced nonetheless. And you're ardently still. It continues, doesn't it? It's industrious. Just like Noah, it continues to do what it knows to be right. In the face of all the arguments, and in Noah's day there were many arguments, this thing is being built in dry land. 
The world, Noah had never witnessed rain, never knew the phenomenon of it, and yet he continued over a hundred years. That's the nature of it. But saving faith is also immediately identifiable. Now the Apostle Peter speaks about Noah. And he relates Noah to us in a way that is just a little strange. He speaks about Noah as a preacher of righteousness. That's how Peter speaks of Noah. As a preacher of righteousness. Now the fact is that the Bible has no recorded sermons that Noah ever preached. None. What we have of Noah is really, in one sense, again, rather scant. There's not a great lot of detail about him. He was a great man of God. He, by his faith and through the instrumentality of this man and his faith, saved the human race. A kind of early saviour, you might say. Not in the same context, and certainly not in the same degree as our Lord Jesus Christ, but appointed by God that humankind should be perpetuated upon the earth. But Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. Now, how are we to understand this? Since we have no recorded sermons, the only way that we can probably, probably, probably do this is to know that what we are and what we do and how we live our lives is, in a sense, preaching. Maybe not in the sense of what I'm endeavouring to do here this evening or Reverend Mackay would do from week to week here in this place. But it's still representative of what we believe. So in other words, the works that we do bear the hallmark of authenticity to make authentic the claim that we make ourselves. Because you see, we can claim to be anything. I I could claim this evening to be able to speak Aramaic and uh, uh, your young friends here this evening, Aaron and his wife, were lifting some of these Aramaic Bibles, and it just seems like a scroll to me. It means nothing. It, it's, it just means nothing. But if I can say that I can speak Aramaic, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, isn't it? Hand me the Bible, and I'll be able to read it for you. Of course, I can't. But to have an authentic claim to be a Christian. God requires evidence. And I've quoted to you already from the book of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. But we are ordained unto good works. So in other words this faith actually works. It functions. It gives evidence to its origin. It returns to God in a sense. It, it lives and it functions in the realm of God. That's what it does. So you can hear people saying, and oftentimes it's done, isn't it? Again, in our country, we have this thing where people can say, well, I was saved in such and such a date, and they can turn to the flyleaf of their Bible and say, there it is, such and such a day in August, such and such a year, there it is. Well, that proves just about the fact you've got a flyleaf in your Bible. It might not prove anything else. But you see, this faith is identifiable it's seen as coming from God as having God as its object and it's exercising this obligation 
In other words, it functions, it bears testimony to God as the origin of it. It's conspicuously exhibited. It's consciously exercised. And that's what Noah did. He was a preacher of righteousness. And he identifies with the God who commanded him to build the ark. And his building of the ark wasn't self. The preaching to the world of his day. Of God and God's intention. And people heard this. I can't imagine other than the world of his day, those who were associated with him to some extent, they probably thought he was an out-and-out basket case. And you see, we're in a position in the world in which you and I live at this present time, with this increase in godlessness and this increase in immorality, that it is not at all, it never was ever fashionable, to be, to be Christian. Uh, and what we can do is we can keep our heads below the parapet. We can be quite silent about the thing. And we can meet here and we can meet in the comfort of this lovely building. And that's about it. It can be. We can have our lives lived in such a closeted way that we are so utterly ineffective. But Noah had to take whatever with ancient implements were to hand. He had to fell these trees. He had a plan to work by which God gave to him. And he had to build the ark. Thereby being a preacher of righteousness. So what I believe must be evident in the way I think. Because the way that I speak will represent the way that I think. And the way that I act. So in other words, it functions by facts, doesn't it? So it's not this kind of um, sort of thing where you drift into this kind of a thirtful thing. You can just drift, drift into it and drift along with it. It functions by fact. The fact of God himself and the fact that this God has spoken and he has created this faith in us and we exercise it. And we exercise it in a way that is consistent with God's revealed character. So the Christian life is basically the God life, isn't it? That's what it is. We are disciples. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are to be his witnesses, his representatives. That's what we are. Paul puts it like this. That your life is written not with pen and ink but by the Spirit of God. Saving faith is industrious. It has to be identifiable. I have to be able to prove that I am what I claim to be, a Christian. It's not simply enough to put it in a form of words. It's not even enough to present it in orthodox language. Because we can actually be orthodox and very dead about it. But this, this word creates this faith and it's life-giving. And it represents itself in a life-giving fashion. It produces this life that represents itself and proves itself authentic. It's born of God. 
And Jesus put it like this, speaking to this religious Pharisee called Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How do we see the kingdom of God? How do we understand those words? You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. How are we born again? You're born again, not of corruptible things, as put it in the words of Peter, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God is the living agency. The word is the agency. The spirit of God is the agent. The agent takes the agency, works it into the hearts of the people of God. They then, being possessors of this faith, exercise it in a manner that is consistent with the God who has given it to us. So saving faith is industrious. It's identifiable. And the final analysis, it's irrepressible. It's indestructible. I I was reading an article recently where some guy, a singer in some very famous group in Australia, um, he's claiming that he's lost his faith. Now I know, and I'm deeply conscious, that there are times in, in the strange providence of God, hardship, trial and tribulation come and Oftentimes, this faith takes a battering. But it is, as I've said in the last analysis, utterly indestructible. It's irrepressible. You can't lose what you've never had. I think that's to be understood, isn't it? Sometimes, and we do hear people talking about losing their faith, well, maybe that's the problem. It's theirs and not God's. Paul would speak about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and he does so in the context of the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's evidential, isn't it? This saving faith is a faith that is born of God. It may suffer a great deal, It may wax and wane, to put it in old language, it may rise and fall, doesn't it? But this spiritual energy cannot be ultimately destroyed because it's born of God. Some of us will remember the the Lucasade advertisement, you remember? Lucasade kind of, it alternates, it goes up and down. A drink of lemonade, you can be in the peak and... After it wears off, you're in the truck again, another drink of lemon, look at it, and you're up again and down again. This saving faith can't be destroyed ultimately because it's of God. And we do well to understand this. Now, this doesn't mean to say that we can be careless about it. We have to indeed hold this in, in holy awe and reverence, this faith, because it's God's gift. And we have to add to it virtue and knowledge and brotherly kindness and all those other fruits of this faith have to be added to it. And when I say, as I said to you this morning, it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. But it's faith that's never alone. For you see, justification is God's declaring of a sinner 
to be righteous. It changes our status before God. But right on the heels of God's declaration of you and I being made righteous is the work of the Spirit of God in sanctification that changes our nature. So one changes our status, the other changes our nature. That the status I claim to have is proven by the nature that I show forth, that I give evidence of possessing. Well, in conclusion this evening, why faith? Well, the Bible tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. That's what I read to you this evening, and that's quite emphatic, isn't it? Verse 6, but it's impossible to please God without faith. Why faith? Well, God is a spirit, we can't see him. Now, the world functions in a very simple philosophy, seeing is believing. You remember Thomas? Following the resurrection when the news came to him, those immortalized words that embarrass people with my name, Thomas, I will not believe unless I see, touch, put my, my hand, my finger into the nail prints in his hands inside, I will not believe. But faith extols the integrity of God who speaks. We, we can't see him. But we believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Again, that's what the Bible teaches us, isn't it? He that cometh to God must believe that he is. We can't see him, but we know. We know because of the faith that has been granted to us. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Well, I wasn't there, neither were you. But we believe that the world was created by God. And some of us, a decreasing number, believe that the world was created by God in the space of six days. That's what we believe. We believe this. And in believing this, we extol God's integrity. It excites his action, doesn't it? It's faith that, that connects us. It's faith that becomes the functioning principle of life, isn't it? Noah built an ark by faith. That's what he did. He built an ark by faith. But also, it exhibits this grace of God. That's what it does. It exhibits this grace. We're back to this position again that saving faith is identifiable. People see, don't they? They look and they see, and you've heard it said before, there are many, many people who don't read their Bible, but they look upon Christians. And the day has ever been, there's never been a time when it's not necessary, and it's certainly very necessary today, that we give evidence to the world outside that we are what we claim to be, that we are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that this world is not our final dwelling place. For we look, as did, did Abraham, we look for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and whose maker is God. Our hope is beyond this world. It's a transcendent thing, isn't it? It is beyond this world and beyond all the kind of reasoning of this world. 
a world that can't even begin to think in a reasonable fashion, doesn't want God or the things of God, is rewriting the script and setting its own agenda. But here we are. And what are we according to the appointment of God? We are his witnesses. We're ambassadors for Christ. We are the emissaries of Jesus Christ in this world. And it is a difficult, difficult task, isn't it? It couldn't be lived naturally. It couldn't be. I've heard it said before, maybe you have too. Well, if we can just live by the golden rule of Matthew 5, 6 and 7, well, that's an impossibility for the natural man. For the natural person seeks their own. But the Christian seeks the honour of the God who so loved him or her and who gave himself for them. That's what we believe. That's the driving dynamic. That's the purpose for which we exist. We're only here for a little season. We have to live in such a way. Even though the world may not accept us, it certainly has to acknowledge there's something distinct about us. It is told, and it's not simply one of these apocryphal stories, of the great John Wesley. You've probably heard of John Wesley. He had many, many enemies. And many of the enemies were very arrogant, very aggressive. His life was threatened more than once. He was beaten many, many times. But it's told of one since infidel who went to hear Wesley on one occasion. And he was so filled with unholy invective that he was meeting some of his atheistic friends in the afternoon. And he said to one of them in particular, we should go along this evening and hear this fool. Hear what he has to say. And the story is told and informed quite accurately that this friend went along with him who himself was an atheist. And when they came out, their conversation was overheard and the guy who had been in the morning who had heard Wesley who had invited this friend along said to him, did you hear that this evening? I listened to it this morning. I've listened to it this evening again. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. How could you possibly believe it? And the guest of the guy who had been invited said, no, I don't believe it either. But John Wesley believes it. He believes it. There's a sense in which that's where it begins and that's where it ends. What do we believe? Does the life that you claim to live, does it bear the hallmark, the stamp of heaven upon it? Does what you believe govern your life and living? For if it doesn't, it's worthless. That's what the Bible would teach us, the book of James. The book of James in the second chapter, of course, is what was raised by Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation. And the great contention against Martin Luther was generally levelled from the book of James. Faith without works is dead. And there's not anyone who believes the Bible's going to argue with that. It's faith alone that's never alone. It always has its attendance 
to confirm that it is authentic faith. That's the answer. That's what the Bible teaches us. Show me your faith. I'll show you my works, says James. In other words, I'll show you this faith in operation. <laughs>